Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Welcome back, everybody. You are in for a treat. This is our quarter three economic and merger and acquisition update. It is sponsored by ITR Economics. Our wonderful partners, Brian, Allen, Lindsay, and Kimberly have been so gracious to be helping and supporting the Intentional Growth Podcast by giving us some data from their live trends, as well as Brian jumping on the show once a quarter to give us a commentary of where things are at, where they've been, where they're going, given ITR's leading indicators, all the data that they are forecasting and their 94.7% accuracy. If you've not checked out their book, The Prosperity in the Age of Decline, I absolutely recommend it. It is truly like so practical. If you've heard me talk about Ray Dalio and all these other economic books that I've been listening to, this is the most practical one for middle market entrepreneurs that I highly recommend. And all the data and their live trends subscription just enhances the data that you can have at your fingertips to help you make better decisions. If this is your first time tuning into one of these updates, we've been doing them for about two years now, where my goal is to find the best experts in the various parts of our economy and access to data for middle market entrepreneurs that are between a couple million in revenue and a few hundred million in revenue. Because so many times when we're tuning into the Wall Street or if we're looking at Bloomberg or you know, anything online or on TV, it's a lot of information directed towards public companies and very large corporations. And we're sitting here as people that are running companies and need to generate enough cash flow to pay for our taxes, pay for our distributions, reinvest in the company and make it all worth it truly to view and run the company like a financial asset through visibility into the future and our decision making. And that is the goal of today's episode is to bring the experts in places like the economy, merger and acquisition updates on the data behind deal structures, the volume of deals, what are the types of uh, multiples getting paid and the ranges and industries, all the different types of things that are important for us as entrepreneurs to look into the future and make decisions on how we're going to place our bets with our capital or how we're going to reinvest back into the business and certain strategies. This is the point of this quarterly update is to bring those people. So what I'm going to do right now is just give a quick overview of the four different segments and who's going to be doing them. And then I'll just give a one or two minute update prior to each one of those segments. So if you're listening to the podcast, you can go into the show notes and you can jump to one of the sections to make it easy because there's not just a you know, next chapter button, but I wanted to make sure that they're all in one episode. So you can go to the show notes or you can go to the Arcona website page where we have these episodes broken down into segments, or you could just jump ahead into the segment that you wanted to. So we are going to be kicking off this episode today with the first segment with ITR Economics, where Brian's going to be giving us an update on China, BRICS, what's going on with interest rates, the inverted yield curve, employment, consumer debt, the uh, commercial real estate, middle market banks getting downgraded. There's a lot of meat on that bone, and there's a lot of context that we're going to be diving into, giving an overview of what industries in what business cycle, whether it's A, B, C, or D, and how that could be impacting business owners' decisions and how they're placing bets. They should really understand where they're at in their business cycle so it's the right bet and the right strategies that they're uh, charging forward with. 
And then the second segment, we've got Doug from the National Center from the Middle Market, where they interview a thousand C-level executives from companies in the middle market about their thoughts on revenue growth, employment growth, whether they would save a dollar or invest a dollar, what their competence is in the future of the economy. So I think it's very interesting having Brian on talking about the economic data. And then we have Doug on giving us an overview of the mindset of a thousand C-level executives in the middle market. And then we have Jeff Butner on for the third segment, where Jeff, who is one of the managing partners of Butcher Joseph, a middle market investment bank, where they are going to be giving us some information from GF data that aggregates data from over 400 private equity firms in the middle market from $10 million enterprise valuations up to a half a billion and what's going on with valuations, multiples, debt and equity structures and ratios and what we should be thinking about inside the actual valuations given where we're at in the economic cycle, interest rates, etc. So I'm trying to stack relevancy on top of each other. And then we're going to wrap up today's update with a segment from Jeff Campbell from AI Commerce. Jeff is a professor and entrepreneur, and he has a lot of data because he spends a lot of time in retail, specifically online e-commerce, where he's going to be leveraging e-marketers' most recent report. And he's going to be giving us an update of what's happening on retail sales compared to online sales and how there's some unique things going on, like Amazon is losing market share to other players and why, and then how Gen Z is going to be impacting a lot of consumer behaviors and where they are going to be purchasing their future products and how that might impact businesses. So we have a lot in store for everybody today. And the last note before we kick off with Brian from ITR Economics is that if you're interested in seeing if you qualify for a financial assessment that's complimentary by my team at Arcona, check out the show notes below where you can book your 15-minute discovery call. We will quickly ask you a few questions. You can walk us through why you're interested and we can determine if you qualify and then we'll move you on to actually doing a complimentary business assessment with my team where we have two complimentary calls. We plug in our financial dashboard to your accounting system and then my team will come back with their thoughts and observations, but it's subject to you qualifying. So go check out the show notes and the discovery link below. So without further ado, here's Brian from ITR Economics. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option to just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want but what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. 
and I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees, and my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. We are ready to jump into my conversation with Brian from ITR Economics. I had an absolute blast. There was a lot of ground to cover because of our last conversation 90 days ago. There's a lot that it's been evolving. So Brian and I are going to dive into ITR's long-term view of what's going on in 2023, the potential recession in 2024, and the growth in 2025, and then how that overall cycle impacts their thoughts on the 2030 Great Depression. And then we move on to the ITR leading indicators and industry trends analysis, where we cover the different business cycles, A, B, C, and D, and where the different industries are at in those business cycles, which is super fascinating and why what most people are thinking these days could potentially be wildly wrong and how their thoughts of where we're at in the cycle could truly impact over the next few years, whether they make or break it. And then we talk about housing a little bit, retail and consumers, and then we can't uh, leave the U.S. economy out of it of what's going on with the inverted yield curve, the, also the, the downgrading of the banks, commercial real estate update, and what the Fed might do with interest rates over time. There's a lot of meat to this episode, so I hope you enjoy this segment with Brian from ITR Economics. Good morning, Brian. How are you? I'm great, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm excited. I'm excited to chat with you. I sent over my questions and I'm like, ah, oh, man, if only I could have five more hours. No, <laughs> Just, let's quickly cover these topics in great detail. No, I, 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 I got to start right where you left us off. It, right as we were wrapping up, you're like, and ask me about China next time. And I think the, that went into the ether, the wall street journal picked it up, the economist picked it up and now everybody's talking about it. So you already anticipated this based on your guys' data and you want to just use that as a liftoff point. Uh, yeah, there's, there's the most obvious thing that people have picked up on is the, the declining demographics. The population of China is shrinking, and that is that is detrimental to economic growth, uh, at least organic economic growth. That means you have to conquer more lands if you're going to have any sort of growth, which obviously with China, you think of Taiwan, you think of the Spratly Islands. None of that is a good scenario. Mm -hmm. And what other people have not necessarily read about yet is just how highly leveraged that Chinese economy is. So like declining population, highly leveraged. And um, this has been reported on, but I'm not sure how many people picked up on it. While we're contending with inflation, they're contending with deflation. Their CPI is in negative territory. So uh, that's a triple header of problems going on within mm -hmm. China. At least the deflation helps in terms of making their 
debt more affordable, but it's, you know, for anybody from investor outward, it looks upon that and you go, oh, there's rigor mortis setting in on this corpse. Yeah. Uh, and and, and Brian, how does that, then you got like, what was the stat too of like 22% of the young adults don't have any jobs or the, yeah. I don't know if it was young males or if it was young, both females and males, but like, I mean, you have people not where, I mean, it, it's a lot of stuff happening at the same time in that tinderbox. And then the Evergrande I was looking at and what was it? Is it garden something or another? I mean, I'm watching those numbers and I'm like, Oh boy, good luck turning that ship around. If how do you like how do you keep the the cash coming? When and I think the other stat was like one hundred and fifty thousand people that don't have homes that already paid for them or something ridiculous like that. It is incredible. So you're going to find the communist government tightens control more and more to make sure that civil unrest doesn't rear its ugly head, and it's just going to get nastier and nastier in there. And I mean, we can look there, or we can and see the declining opportunities there, or you could. Look at two other factors. One, India's population is now greater than China's population. That's a huge tectonic shift. Mm-hmm. And India intends to take over China's pole position as a manufacturing entity on this planet. And they can do it with some improvements to their infrastructure, uh, a lot of improvements to their infrastructure, and being more open to Western money. Um, but they could pull it off. And that just means a huge shift in cash, foreign direct investment, trade, airline flows, ship flows. I mean, this is huge. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see it unfold over the next 10 to 15 years. I mean, it's pretty cool. I love how it's pretty cool because it's, it's, it's interesting watching it all unfold. And that's what I'm becoming more and more. I don't know if it's better watching it unfold in an objective perspective. Like, hey, this is kind of how it's going down. And your framework has helped out a lot. How does I just have this picture blasted into my brain of all of the BRICS people holding their hands up going yay and I'm like and then we're not there and so I'm thinking of like how does that association of BRICS and opening up the BRICS cohort to different countries impact kind of the monetary policy underneath this shift is there anything we should be thinking about ask yourself why are the BRICS opening up and welcoming others in why are they doing that they don't want to be working with us would be my thought Maybe, or it's because uh, a couple of the major bricks, Brazil and China, are not worth talking about. And they have never, I mean, China's losing, as we just talked, and Brazil uh-huh. has never developed its potential. Yep. So they need to broaden their economic basket, if you will, in order to be worthwhile talking about it. And those same bricks have been selling a lot of U.S. debt, right? And they're selling the U.S. debt partly because they want people to have the perception of what you just said, that they don't Mm -hmm. want to be part of the dollar anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's also an interesting line of thought, particularly in China's case and Brazil's case, they need the money. (laughs) It always comes down to the money and the cash flow. It's like when I think about like in in the Belt and Road was so important as part of China's investment thesis and how much investment they made. And from what I've gathered anecdotally, like it's not paying off the way it should. So there's all this debt with all these people and the big yeah. players are not chugging along like they should be. Hmm. Right. And and one of the bricks is Russia. And, you know, their cash flow is strictly from oil and thanks to China. But it's very tenuous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they need to de-dollarize and have some more cash reserves. It's not a mainstream movement, though. That's what people need to uh, keep their perspective on. We, we look at 
central bank reserves across the globe mm. to see if there are any significant shifts toward gold, away from the dollar, toward the yuan. And last time I looked, and it was about two months ago, and I know things have changed since, but when you're talking about the size of dollars we're talking about, two months isn't going to change much. Yep. Um, 3% of central bank reserves were held in the Chinese currency. 3% were in Canada's currency. Wow. That's how important the Chinese are. <laughs> <laughs> Math the numbers don't lie, do they? <laughs> nope. Oh, that's it's interesting. Hey, what was there uh, any gold movement? I, you know, I, I, I found myself down a rabbit hole of looking at the central bank's balance sheets half a year ago or something like that. Is there any kind of significant note, noteworthy news about the gold uh, in any of these banks? I don't remember what the de- details were. No, not, not that no. I recall. And, um, you know, I've been following gold because we have clients who are investors who ask about gold. And um, gold's a really interesting investment to make at any given time. And I can understand why central banks hold it as a relative store of value. But in a day and age where people are still investing in cryptocurrencies, it just sort of seems like, what? I, uh, by the way, I've got this 16 pixel NFT. I'll sell you for $80 million, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it's going to be the next thing. Yeah. Uh, define intrinsic value on that one, right? <laughs> yeah. Really. Oh, too funny. Um, all right. Uh, so I have been consuming and I absolutely love the the trends report and the material that you guys are pumping out. And I, and I was when I was prepping for the questions of kind of the, where these different industries are in in the business cycle. I just find it so fascinating where people's minds are at and where the data is at and the kind of the lag effect behind it. And it's kind of the first one is the housing. So as I was looking at, you know, the housing kind of getting into the hitting the bottom, you want to kind of explain Again, you know, we got the the four different cycles and how the leg effect happens and why housing actually might have already hit the bottom. And I think back to your point, the mainstream news is not talking about that in the way that you are talking about that. Right. There are some interesting green shoots in housing to answer that part of the question first. So it does seem it's still in front of we think of the economy as a train. And there's four different phases of the cycle because there's two hills that the uh, that we look for things to industries to be going through. And the, at this time, housing is one of the early turners that it seems to have gone through the valley of death and it's on its way up. If you look at building permits, they're coming back up. Um, existing home sales are creeping back up. But part of the creeping part is because there's just not much inventory out there. Mm-hmm. But even with that restriction of inventory, we're seeing some pickup in that uh, existing home activity. And that tends to be um, an okay leading indicator. The correlation to the overall economy uh, when it comes to new homes is not that strong, but existing home sales leads the industrial production GDP, which are the anchors of the economy, the coincident indicators, uh, on a rate of change basis by 15 months. So this is a big deal, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes it can be as long as 27 months. It depends on what the slope of that rise looks like. And so far, it's taking off slowly. But it is an early sign that, yes, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not another train coming at us. It's the sunrise that we have all been anticipating. Yeah, that's exactly what happens to my brain when I think about, think about this stuff. <laughs> On the other end of the train, though, you have non-residential construction, 
which is going through the apex of the cycle and it's about to go careening downward. Mm -hmm. And anybody who has been following the commercial real estate market and what that means for the banks can understand why that's that whole industry is going to find itself in a credit crunch mm -hmm. that is just going to bring that to a grinding halt, relatively speaking. But that's at the, at the caboose. In between is retail sales and GDP and industrial activity and manufacturing in general. Uh, new orders will lead production, getting back into that train concept. And I just looked at uh, total manufacturing new orders. And over the last three months, it's down 0.6% from the same three-month period one year ago. Hmm. So it's like you're, you're just dipping your toe into the swamp, but we're feeling the swamp already there. Ready <laughs> the mud stop. is there. <laughs> yeah. And it's because consumer inventories are, are a, an issue. Um, people are concerned about the consumer being able to spend. So, and again, the banks aren't lending money. So all of this sort of makes sense that yeah. we're, we're going into this icky period. And you and I have talked about this before, largely thanks to these ridiculously high interest rates. I mean, I agree that they had to go up, but they didn't have to go up like a Saturn V rocket or mm -hmm. a SpaceX rocket or whatever I'm supposed to be saying now. To, to be, to be <laughs> it's a balloon, Brian. It's a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shoot it down <laughs> that's great um well and, and like and it, it, it kind of this ties into before i go into your overall kind of next 36 month perspective of kind of where this is going i want to go back to that in a sec but the what i find fascinating about the train concept is housing is seeing the light which the amount of conversations I have, Brian, of like, it's going to crash, it's going to crash, because everybody just thinks about what happened in the last part of their life. Yes. And and I'm like, no, like, it, it's just, it's going, it, like, this is it. It's like where housing is unaffordable for most people is another pain that's different, especially if it's coming through. But what I think is so interesting about the Make Your Move book and what you guys do with the data is like, all of these companies, or not companies, all these industries that are on the apex of the C growth cycle, can you explain why it's so dangerous in the C cycle of what these industries and the heads of these companies potentially could be doing if they're not paying attention to your data? Oh my gosh, yeah, at the top of C, so very late B, early C, you're riding high. The year-over-year -year growth numbers are terrific. People have a history bias, whether it's the last minute, the last two years, or the last business cycle. That's what they tend to develop in their heads as a paradigm. So. I've been successful. I've led this company for the last two, three years. Everything's been turning to gold. Let's just keep doing it. And uh, let's build, and everybody who's been in business long enough knows this, let's build another factory or another distribution center at the top because, damn it, whatever we touch is going to turn to gold. We need it. We know we need it. Just look at the last two years. And how many of us can count off the number of factories that have been built or facilities that have been built at the very top of the business cycle. Mm -hmm. You know when I know when a business is really in trouble? When they're riding that crest of the cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Late B, early C. And they say, this is a great time to remodel the office. And I'm thinking... <laughs> beanbags, are, beanbags and ping pong tables are coming back, Brian. Let's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not remodel the office so much as do some missionary work in the new markets or something. You know, I mean, really? <laughs> oh, it's in, 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 
I've watched it too, Brian, where it's like people are just making these bets and you're like, and even people like myself or the, you're the people that are following you guys, it's like, you still kind of second guess yourself. You're like, I'm looking at the data. Why are these people doing this? And it's kind of hard to fathom that someone is making that kind of bet with that little of information. Yeah. And, and the, a lot of them are drawing it from the worst possible sources, which isn't a podcast like this. It's from reading the headlines on mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And the way the algorithms are, you get self-reinforced information all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So, well, of course I'm right. That, Let's go buy it. There we go. I read the read the headline. Let's build a factory. That's <laughs> 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 uh, confirmation bias is real and alive and well. So that um, with the context of housing starting to come up, and then you got the commercial real estate and that, uh, kind of the, all the, a lot of the other industries in between, and the B and C. Maybe th this is a good spot for the IT indicator of you know you got the 2023 slowdown, 2024 recession. And I like how you just you just say it. It's a recession, soft landing, this and that. Is it a quasi recession? You guys are saying like, hey, there's going to be a contraction, but then there's 2025 growth. What's the how do like when I think about that? And let me let me know if I'm thinking about this the right way. Where you got the interest rates that were jacked up that fast, and it takes a long time for that stuff to set in. And then yeah, when I think it. about so interest rates are starting to actually the golf ball is going through the garden hose. You got student debt that's starting to kick in next month of what, 40 million people between 200 and $500 a month or something like that. And then yeah, it's more like two to 300, but that's okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to, trying to think about all these things that will lead up to the next 18 months. So how does, how do you kind of put it like, what's the, what's the thought behind the container of the 2024 then 2025? Well, a lot of what you said pertains to 2024. People are going to start repaying their debt, but not everybody's going to be doing that because the government's trying to find another angle, right? And it's interesting. And one of the reasons why we're seeing the green shoots in housing, and this is important to remember, is that interest rates normalize. And what I mean by that is 7%, 7.5% becomes... Okay, well, I better get that before it goes even higher. I'm not going to get 3.5%. I'm not going to get 4%. I'm not going to get 5%. So I need to make my move now. So the shock of the interest rate rise is over with, and you're seeing it in housing. And that's a terribly good sign as far as I'm concerned about 2025 getting back on track. My major concern about 2025, Ryan, is Jackson Hole's seem to be all about warning us that they intend to hold interest rates high. They may stop raising them after one more hike here in 23, but they don't really have any serious intent about lowering them, at least for the first half of 24. And that scares the daylights out of me because we need to get the inverse yield curve normalized by lowering these short-term interest rates. And when I look at the mountain of debt in that commercial real estate market mm -hmm. and what it's going to do to this regional and small banks who own two thirds of this $3.6 trillion worth of debt. And so much of it needs to be refinanced in 24, 25 and 26. If the Fed doesn't start coming around and being accommodated with interest rates, they're going to create something that could take 25 and take it off the table in terms of seeing a recovery. Okay, well, that's kind of what 
I was like, when I, I, full disclosure for the listeners, I had sent Brian, uh, I'd screenshotted a couple of Wall Street Journal uh, snapshots. I sent it to you and I said, I know, I know old habits die hard because I'm, I'm looking at the headlines, but I like pictures and I saw the pictures of how much has to be refinanced between corporate debt and real estate debt. And I'm going, I would not want to be the person looking at the math behind like refinancing and that timeline. Yeah. One of the things the Fed can do though is change the rules, Ryan, and they can say, all right, you don't have to mark the value of that mortgage down on your books. You can carry it at uh, origination value. So the banks don't look as bad and their loan ratios don't look as bad. And uh, you just try and wink and nod and hope it all goes away when interest rates do come down and the market recovers. So that's just, they have that sleight of hand capability. We've seen them do it before. Mm -hmm. uh, they haven't said they're going to do it, but they, they, they can't be so silly as to think they can create this sort of a problem in the economy and not do something about it. Mm -hmm. So how does this situation then impact, how is it impacted by the downgrading of the middle market banks that we saw? Well, it, it, it makes it worse. I mean, with the, the, the downgrading, are you talking about the, uh, yeah, the yeah. like the, the rating agencies? Yeah. Yeah. So like, have? so now, like maybe kind of in, I, cause I think people saw that, but I don't think a lot of people know really intrinsically what that means to any of these issues that we're talking about. So like what happens when they get downgraded? Like how does that impact lending and their clients and some of the situations oh, that can about? impact lending is you have to be a lot more cautious because one avenue to raising fresh capital just the window closed a little bit when you you got rated at a lower level you're less interesting uh, to invest in and you're less interesting to lend money to unless i'm going to get compensated for that additional uh, risk unless you're the united well even with the united states you know um, we got our mm -hmm. notch taken down a little bit and we haven't seen long-term interest rates yet on the 10-year bond yield come back down we're still flirting at four and a quarter 4.3 percent mm -hmm. um, because of that move mm -hmm. well and probably because of some of what the chinese are have been yep, doing yep, so. yep and so when i think about um the inverted yield curve you had mentioned that so there's been some talks get, I think we covered this on one of our last uh, conversations, but maybe kind of a quick synopsis again of what the inverted yield curve is because the mainstream media is like, hey, does this matter anymore? So they're kind of trying to like change how the, the actual fundamentals work, I think. So maybe any any comments you have on that situation? Sure. It matters 88% of the time. So you can't say that it always matters, but 88% of the time is a pretty, pretty strong number. It matters because it distorts behavior. It, if we didn't have the inverse yield curve, the banks would not have found their balance sheets so badly trashed. Uh, they weren't heavily into long bonds because that's normally the better way to go. But you invert the yield curve and all of a sudden you need short-term bonds, not long-term bonds. And we find the Chinese are selling, and this is why you have to be careful about what the Chinese are doing. They're selling off U.S. government securities, particularly the long bonds, right? But it's not like they're, they're uh, flipping off I'm just, just, I don't know how else to put it, the U.S. economy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because they're buying U.S. government agency bonds instead. They can buy a short-term agency bond that's paying two, four hundred basis points more than the U.S. government 10-year bond. Mm -hmm. well, why wouldn't they? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't any sane person do that? Mm -hmm. um, even some of our allies have done that. So it distorts behavior. 
and uh, it distorts the normal flow of thinking within the economy. And that's what tends to get you into this mess. And, and, we're, and we're trying to get back to some normal, like, like Becky, you said, what was the, how did you word the, like, once the interest rates become normalized, it's like, hey, we need it, like this normalized economy that is a little bit more, I mean, we could project it out, we can assess the risk of the different bets that we're playing. And I think it's just been difficult as people are, all the scenarios we're talking about make it difficult to see through the clouds of, you well, know, and we were addicted to those low interest rates for like 10, 15 years, right? I mean, we're addicts. I, I, what, how does that impact the, so when I thought I saw a, a graph about the, the uh, cash flow op from operations from Visa and MasterCard on visualizing a capitalist, I don't know if you ever come across that. You probably have way better data and different graphs, but like I saw this and I was like, holy buckets, like how they've grown from the credit card debt and consumer debt in general has been this topic of conversation. So I, I how, how should I or the listeners be thinking about the, the kind of the two comments from two sides of the same coin of like, there's the resilient American consumer. And like, well, are they resilient or are they just racking up credit card debt and consumer debt? You know, like I'm trying to, there's a truth probably in between there. And I'm just kind yeah, of- there is. And, and you always have to keep in mind, and I too ain't like the visuals. Um, but one thing that's great about people who like visual data is I can always make the chart say whatever I want it to say, but choosing <laughs> yeah. the time period and the scale. Yep. Right? So- um, that's I tend to like the long-term perspective, and I also tend to like the data that go along with it. When I look at my approach to the data, uh, yeah, they're in more debt, but they're way below their credit threshold, and the debt load doesn't seem to be crushing. I can come up with all sorts of scary, scary statistics, but for instance, credit card delinquency is still running below where it was pre-COVID, that 10-year average. Mm -hmm. uh, automobile delinquencies are very low. Homeowner delinquencies are very low. Those are the numbers that matter. Mm -hmm. not, mm -hmm. not anything not the, not the quantity because it's got like and I, and I I think it's so important what you said. I'm just want to highlight it for the listeners is it's all context, Brian, and that's what you guys do such a great point of like here's the context over time. Here's the data, so it actually has got relativity because without relativity, we're just making stuff up and yeah. we can yeah. Without relativity, we're politicians. <laughs> Oh, I will refrain from taking that that uh, that candy that was right in front of me. Come on, I threw you a nice big <laughs> chunk of bait there. <laughs> you did, you did, you did, and I I will use some self discipline. So, um, I I have a question um, about the, how the twenty thirty and prosperity in the age of decline and your guys's model. How does the the dramatic wealth inequality? And like the quantity of like, you know, Ray Dalio's got the long-term debt cycle. And I know that that's how he's been labeling it. But you guys, I, your book, I just need to be so clear, was seriously one of my favorite ones for oh. applicability. Honestly, Brian, like I was like, Ray Dalio can, like he was just like, oh, there's more of these things. And like, I'm like, great, but what the hell are we supposed to do about this? And how does it matter today? And it's like, boom, there's your guys's book. It's so practical. It's honestly like so well-written, but I like, I, how does the inequality or long-term debt cycle, or should we even be thinking about it the way that he thinks about it? And how does that all play into your framework? And I don't, if we have to kind of tee up this next time too, we can. Yeah, we'll tee it up for next time in greater depth, but the um, inequality, the income inequality uh, is going to continue to increase. The deck is stacked in that direction. 
you know, it ebbs and flows, but that's been the trend since the 1980s, and we're not really going to easily get off that trend. It's in the 2030s that you find social structures, our laws change to address those income inequalities. And that's easier to do when us baby boomers are passing away. Because while we have the power and the money, we'll have neither when we're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Death and taxes. I mean, right? Well, it's, it's, it, it's it, yeah, interesting. That's uh, another reason that I just absolutely love your guys' book, Brian. It's so practical. And I've even been telling people, like, you don't have to be an economist to read it. I mean, it's just, it's such, like, and what I love about it, Brian, and everything that you guys do is it, it's, it's taken for me, my personal experience on this is it's just taken the pressure off of needing to understand all the day-to-day crap because it's not necessary. Like what people are like, well, why do you have your business plan towards 2030? I'm like, because I know that there's a bunch of people that are going to be 10 years older than they are right now. <laughs> and like, <laughs> like, and then, like, I just don't have to be a genius to actually build a plan around that. And they're like, oh, doesn't need to know that PE ratio tomorrow of some stock. <laughs> exactly. Brian, this is always a pleasure, and thank you so much for coming to the show, and I will see you next time. It is always with gratitude that I am on the show, so thank you. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Brian from ITR Economics. There's a lot of information there, and there's a lot of data, and I think one of the biggest questions people have is, what do we do about that? I would highly recommend going and checking out their book, Prosperity in the Age of Decline. It'll answer so many questions, and then sign up for their ITR Economics Live Trends Report, which there's a monthly subscription. You can go learn more about that below where you can get more data on where things are at and the different business cycles and the ITR long-term view. A lot of material there that I highly recommend checking out and why I'm very excited for the next segment, which is Doug from the National Center for the Middle Market, is they survey a 1,000 C-level executives from CEOs, CFOs, from different middle market companies about their thoughts about where the country, the economy, and therefore their company is headed. And for some perspective, there's over 200,000 companies employing 48 million people in the middle market. It's the middle market that you're hearing me constantly talk about from the US Census Bureau. So we're actually polling the people that are in the biggest segment about what they think is gonna happen. And there's some fascinating comparisons compared to the public data which is why we're doing this podcast. So revenue growth is in the double digits compared to the S&P 500. The employment growth in the middle market is actually still in double digits compared to the low single digits. And one of the questions that I think is so fascinating is they, the National Center asked the C-level executives, if you had an extra dollar, would you rather invest it or save it? And Doug's gonna be talking about their responses and why. And then what is their economic confidence in the future and how they're planning on positioning their company and their strategies to navigate the rest of this year and next year. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Doug, and then we're going to dive into what's actually happening in the merger and acquisition environment and deal volume, deal structures, valuations after the National Center conversation, because I think once we understand what's going on in the economy, what's going on in people's heads, then we can kind of start to see how that's translating into deal volume, deal structures, and valuations when we talk to Jeff from Butcher Joseph. Good morning, Doug. How are you? I'm doing well, Ryan. How are you? 
Super good, man. I'm very excited to dive into your guys's uh, new report. The it was halfway through the year, and it's super fascinating, Doug. As I've been having more of this uh, cadence with ITR as we've been doing these quarterlies, thinking and looking at their historical trends and looking at their histo and their future data and how it reconciles with the, the the polls that you're taking. So they've got the economic data and we're reconciling it with the people actually making all the decisions. It's super insightful because of how many correlations there are, which gives me more confidence in the data, which is exciting. So why don't you, uh, we got the five main buckets, right? You want to just, how do you want to tackle them? Uh, and and you've got us uh, for the listeners in, we'll, we'll be co giving commentary, but there's also, if you chose to go over to YouTube, we'll be able to show the actual slides that Doug's going to be putting yeah. up. Let me pull up. Uh, let me pull up a tab here for everybody to kind of look at while I go through it. Yeah. So um, again, I'm I'm glad to be back on on your podcast, Ryan. Um, appreciate you know your interest in the middle market and and certainly uh, it's within our center's mission to try to share as much information as we can um, about these companies, about how they're doing, about some of their challenges and some of their opportunities. So. Um, I would say, you know, the main storyline that we uh, get out of our mid-year 2023 middle market indicator, uh, which, by the way, we collected all this data in the first three weeks of June. Okay. So, you know, our process is, is to go out and survey 1,000 uh, C-suite financial decision makers at these businesses. So we look at, you know, all different size companies, every industry, every part of the country. All that data does get weighted back to the U.S. Census, so that's reflective um, of the makeup of the middle market. But, you know, essentially, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's like performance, you know, continues to chug along. Uh, I would say, you know, ever since the recovery kind of coming out of the pandemic, we've seen two plus years of really strong performance out of the middle market. And I can kind of walk through some of this data. Um, you know, what I'm sharing here is kind of our dashboard. Uh, we like to call mm -hmm. it in terms of the summary of the of the performance. So, First place you start, you know, just looking at top line revenue growth, close to 12%. Again, this has you know, been pretty consistent over the last couple of surveys we've done. Mm -hmm. um, I always like to throw in that caveat, you know, since last summer when inflation really started to spike. I mean, obviously, there are some impacts in that number of inflation, mm -hmm. because as we know, talking to these companies throughout the, the survey and just even more qualitatively, a lot of them have been taking their own increased costs of doing business, their raw materials, their own, you know, and just passing that on to their customers. Mm -hmm. so of course, as a result, top line revenue will grow um, as prices and, and rates start to go up. But we also see that there's, you know, some significant expansionary activity going on as well in terms of producing new products and services, entering new markets, building new facilities. So, those activities then indicate, you know, there is a, an appetite for growth. It's not just it's not just attacking on the extra ten percent of the products. <laughs> yes, correct. It's not it's not all artificial. We do right. acknowledge there's a portion of it that's due to inflation, but there's certainly yeah. a lot of organic growth happening as well. Um, you compare that to the S and P five hundred. So we've been doing this for a number of years, where we you know think about, okay, how does this compare to large businesses in the U S. Uh, they've grown at 4.8% over the last year. So this is, again, comparing back to to the last 12 months. And then if we think about the rest of this year, well, and then into the, yeah. 
Yeah, oh, sorry, cool. I, want to, I want to interrupt you just for a second because right, yeah, right there was really important. Is uh, and, and I'll, we'll link to this in the show notes. Doug is like when you you your uh the market that moves America document like because it's just really to your mission. Like it, think about it. Like the middle market's growing at eleven percent, and they employ like what did you what does it say in here? Like it's like four. What is it? Uh, there's two hundred thousand middle market companies and employ right. how many people? Like. And it's growing at 10%. Like, this is a big deal. When I think about, like, Yellen and Paul and all these people talking about inflation, and they look at, like, Amazon Meta and all these people, and, like, they look at the S&P 500 as slowing in growth and the employment is slowing, yet here's the middle market just screaming upwards right. in double-digit growth. Right. And it's half the population of the working people in America. <laughs> so it's, like, it's a big deal. And yeah. I think that we're seeing how big of a deal the middle market is, Doug, inside of the inflation stock, it, it, uh, numbers, in my opinion. Yep, yep. Absolutely. So, um, okay. Sorry to, to digress, yeah, but yeah, you're, no, you're no, going into employment growth. Yeah. Great observations. I mean, I, I sometimes gloss over those, you know, stats to remind people about the importance of the middle market, but you're spot on. I mean, it's, it's still, I think, grossly underestimated and ignored when it comes to kind of overall U.S. economic performance. But again, and I think I'm we're pretty- seeing that because, the, and I, I think that's my point is, Yes, that, that's obviously your guys' mission, but we're finally seeing how important it is because if Powell can't, you know, get to that target 2% because we're not addressing the middle market, everybody's looking at the people that like we think are indicated of the whole economy, and I just think it's just a proof, which is yep. good. Okay, yep. sorry, moving on to then employment. Yeah, so employment, you know, this one's been interesting because even going way back to, I'm talking like 2015, Employment has always been a significant challenge for mid-sized companies, you know, finding enough people, finding the right people, um, and they're fighting, right, against small and large businesses. So when we see numbers like 10% uh, employment growth, 10% projected over the next year, you know, I always, in my mind, wonder, are those numbers and that type of growth actually achievable? Because we know there's this significant issue when you look at, you know, still historically low unemployment, um, the things that the Fed is doing, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's kind of um, speaking to, you know, things that they're trying to do to bring that inflation down. But in fact, employment kind of continues to rage on and, and the middle market is no different. Yeah. Yeah. And then similarly, we compare that to small and large versus some reporting that ADP puts out, um, which is which is a headcount based report. But yeah. again, it serves as a nice proxy. And just like revenue, I mean, the middle market is kind of blowing away the growth in both of the other two categories of size. Which are 1.4 for small and 1.6 yes. for large compared to 10. Right. And I just think, I mean, like, again, that is so dramatic, Doug. And would be in what's fascinating, and I don't know if you guys dive this further into the data, is like when I think about like the, the income statement and balance sheets and cash flow statements that we see inside of, one of the biggest hindrances to smaller, the, the mid-sized marketplace is, can they afford the engineers and the people? They, I know they've got another study that we're going to talk on for a couple minutes, yep. but like, can they afford the people that they need to invest in at the same time, especially as wages need to go up for people yep. to pay for the cost of living? It's like the middle market is almost like this pinch point that yep. I see. And I, to your point, I think is validating can we even achieve the gap that they want to hire for? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we looked at, I mean, to your point, we looked at that a little bit to see, 
you know, it's kind of jumping ahead to some other comments I was going to make. But yeah, like how are companies dealing with this macroeconomic environment, the war for talent? We're seeing things like offering, you know, retention bonuses, wages certainly going up. I think the um, average right now is about 6% increase across mid-sized companies. So yeah, they're, they're reacting in those ways because they have to in order to keep people. Um, and it's critically, critically important is going to kind of continue to affect their own cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. All right, we can come back to that in a second. So then you got uh, capital investment, which I found was an interesting shift. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's um, we've been asking this question since the first time we fielded the MMI back in 2012. We ask it in a kind of an interesting way. We say, you know, if you had an additional dollar of revenue, what would you do with that dollar? So six out of 10 companies are telling us they will invest. I think this is still lagging somewhat behind the performance. The reason I say that is, you know, pre-COVID, we saw investment numbers that typically were closer to 70%. And now that we continue to remain in this environment of a lot of uncertainty, certainly inflation, Will there be a recession? I think, you know, there's still varying opinions out there. Is it going to hit? Will, will it even be severe or how long? So that creates, uh, you know, some pullback and hesitancy when it comes to this in, uh, investing. But again, six out of 10 companies tell us that they're putting that money right back into growing their businesses. Do you want to give us a, it, what I found is cool is on the expansion uh, section, like, of where they're planning on putting that money and how it's actually grown significantly over the last few years since even 2019. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's surprising. From survey to survey, a lot of times the the capital destinations might change. Um, in this wave, you know, we're seeing things like again building facilities, plant and equipment. Um, we're seeing investment back into people, not only in hiring and wages, but also in the form of training. Because as I mentioned earlier, sometimes you just, you know, you're hiring people that don't necessarily have the right skills. And mm-hmm. so they have to be trained and, and skilled up and, and kind of addressing those gaps. Uh, we're also seeing quite a bit of, you know, this is interesting. And this kind of touches on some other work we've done earlier this year, but investing in technology. You know, we've been looking at digital transformation now for a number of years. And this seems to be an area that's just going to continue to excel and, and particularly as more and more of the large service providers have come to the realization that middle market companies need a more scaled and a more affordable version of these technology platforms, right. as that shift starts to happen, more and more businesses are going to um, invest in these areas. And it's certainly going to help do two things. One, drive productivity and potentially lower costs, and then also pre- address some of that human capital issue and human resource mm-hmm. issue that we've already talked about a bit here today. Super fascinating, Doug. It'll be interesting um, as we watch the, your uh, data over the coming years. I had this uh, gentleman on the podcast where we were talking about AI and AI productivity for companies. And his whole deal is really shifting the narrative around instead of doom and gloom of firing people is like, we actually need AI to boost productivity as the boomers are retiring. And like, so his whole deal is like, can we get like three times the productivity out of our current staff then without hiring? So it's not like a negative, it's a positive growth. And be interesting as we see, as we watch these numbers, how productivity and employment and revenue all kind of track with the AI movement. Yep. Yep. And we, and we, um, you know, we wanted to ask about AI as well. So I, 
I would say there hasn't been an event, a conference, a presentation that I've been at in the last six months where AI hasn't come up. Mm-hmm. And so in this wave, we want, you know, we put in a couple of questions, pretty high level, but to just to get a general sense, like where does the middle market stand on this right now? You know, I think the light bulb is coming on more and more companies are getting curious about it. Um, you know, we ask like current state, are you looking at it? Are you testing it? Or are you actively using it? Only about 10% of the companies are actively uh, engaging in AI in different parts of their business, but a significant majority are in some you know, area of exploration mm-hmm. and or testing. Mm-hmm. So we know this is going to happen. It's not a question of if, but when. Yeah. And to your point, I think there could be you know, some of the significant challenges these businesses face can be addressed by smartly using these types mm-hmm. of tools. It'd be interesting too, as you see, as you track that, um, Doug, is that one of the big reasons I believe that it's only 10% using it now is this whole like data security of like, you can't go on to chat GPT. I the guy I was interviewing, yeah. he, his name is Lauren for the listeners, Lauren Harsager. When I interviewed him, he was like someone from like, I think it was Samsung or a public company put their like board uh, share minutes in there, <laughs> their shareholder <laughs> minutes in there. And it was like, holy cow, now it's actually live. So I wonder if it's like people are, you know, working actively working towards it, but they're doing it more in the private network setting. Yeah. Until yeah, right. they actually, yeah, which takes I, a little bit longer. There are some, um, you know, from some of the experts, I'm certainly not an expert in this area. I'm not a technologist, but from some that I've heard and, and met with uh, throughout the last couple months, I mean, it sounds like there's some really big fundamental issues to solve with this. One of which you just talked about intellectual property, right? Like mm-hmm. who owns this stuff? Mm-hmm. If you're out in these chat GPT environments, um, you know, it's my understanding that that's not your property. It's kind of like public domain. So it's going to be really (laughs) fascinating to watch over the coming months. Likewise. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, All right, let's uh, keep going. And then um, the next section is confidence. Yeah. So, I mean, we, you know, we look at three different levels, global, U S and then local. Um, The, this pattern is certainly not surprising. It's remained almost um, entirely consistent over the 38 times we've done this survey. Local economic confidence, always the highest because that's where middle market companies operate. It's the area that they know, you know, they know the people, their suppliers, their customers, their employees locally. What, what does encourage me about this, though, is despite all of that uncertainty out there in the macro economy, these numbers remain pretty high. I mean, close to historically high in terms of all three levels. So, you know, that is a indicator of kind of future uh, confidence in both performance, growth, um, and those types of things. I mean, like you literally have, I'm looking at the chart. It's like, it's the same almost for local as it was in 2019. Yeah. Right. Global. Okay. I don't know what's going on here, man. Like I must be living in a parallel universe, but global economic confidence is higher than 2019. (laughs) Maybe people are seeing stuff that I'm not, but that's a good thing. And and I think it maybe is uh, feeding the narrative. Like, I mean, these companies can control their destiny in their local markets and then in their national presence. And it's maybe more, is is it, like what? What would you attribute? Yeah, well, that, I mean, you know, so you think about a year ago. I mean, it was the, these numbers dipped quite a bit. We had right. inflation started to hit last summer and, and spike kind of out of control. We were, you know, nine ten percent. You had the war in in uh, Central Europe, so that affected a lot of that global 
you know, because again, when people think about the global economy, a lot of times that is looking at the news and mm-hmm. thinking about geopolitical events that are happening around the world, largely out of their control, right? So you're getting yep. influenced by what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Asia, what's happening in these areas. Um, yeah, and then, you know, locally, yeah, it comes down to kind of like what what's happening in your backyard and, and um, things that are outside of the management team's control, but again, certainly have an impact on the business performance. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's encouraging, which I think is actually showing up then in the cap, capital investment area, which I, uh, it goes back to what you said. Like, I mean, the fact that people are willing to spend the dollar instead of yeah. save a dollar is kind of they really the people judge with their wallet. <laughs> yeah. And interest, you know, and, and it's interesting given the fact that compared to a couple of years ago when money was essentially free, right? Our interest rates were close to zero. And now mm-hmm. we're up in that six, 7% range. Um, we, you know, we do ask a question every survey because I've had this posed to me like, hey, what, how are these middle market companies thinking about access to capital? Less than 10% say it's a problem for them. Now, that number may change between now and the end of the year. We're certainly going to keep an eye on it. But for most businesses, at least they feel right now they have the access they need, but it certainly comes at an increased cost, right? If they're taking out a yep. loan or a line of credit, that cost to them is a lot higher than it was, say, three, four years ago. I agree, but I think, which makes a ton of sense too, Doug, but I also think like the whole cap cost of capital shenanigans is never really ingrained in the middle market playbook anyways. It's like we need to, I always, when I speak to Vistage, I always say, Doug, like the difference between the middle market and the public markets are the middle markets have to generate enough cash flow to pay their payroll and pay taxes where the public markets can just move some different things around and yeah. you know do their accounting tricks. And their goal is to then get just continue to fuel their capital need. And if they're fueling capital or if the, if the fuel is capital, incremental cost makes a big deal. Well, in middle market, it's like if you're going to build a plant every now and then or one acquisition every now and then, you're going to look at the interest rates, but it might not fundamentally change your strategy. I don't sure. know if you see that as true or not true but yeah no I, th- I i think you're absolutely right yeah the 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 i guess the purview or the planning long-range planning mentality of these companies a lot different right they're not thinking <laughs> about the next quarter's earning report they're thinking about three four five years down the road right, right so right. um yeah a lot of those considerations do tend to be quite different when evaluating um you know the, the need and the use of capital so i 100 percent agree so as we wrap up, um, you got your you know key internal and external challenges. What are some things that you think we should be thinking about before we have you on next? Yeah, I mean, so you know that's that's always an interesting area. The things that we, we see popping up that are kind of keeping a lot of these executives up at night. Yeah, where is inflation heading? I mean, we're you know it's it has um, improved significantly over a year ago, as as we all know. But is that going to continue to go down? Uh, potential recession, as I mentioned earlier, how does that impact, you know, not only my own business, but my customers and mm-hmm. my employees and how do I have to react with wages accordingly, cost of living, those types of things. You know, it's the other thing we asked about just one or two questions about the banking crisis that happened, the mini crisis in the spring. Yeah. And, you know, surprisingly, um, it, it spooked a lot of these companies. Um, they ended up, you know, maybe moving some of their money from, one bank to another. Some of them told us they bought additional FDIC coverage. I mean, I think it was just kind of a scare that that sent a uh, kind of a short shockwave through, but it, it appears that we're past that. So um, I would say that's a lingering concern. 
the talent issues are always the kind of the evergreen topic, right? And we've touched on that already a little bit. So I think those are going to be the big things, you know, as we get through the end of this year, uh, how to address those. And then, yeah, certainly the technology question, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it's easy to say, yeah, sure, go, you need to invest in technology. But a lot of these businesses come back and tell us, that's great, but where do I go? Where, how? Who do I talk to? Where's the smart place for me to invest? They kind of need a roadmap or a playbook, right? Right. And so that's where we say like, look, you might not have that expertise internally, but there are a lot of advisors out there that can help you down that journey. So you really need to find those, just like your banker, lawyer, accountant, mm-hmm. you need to find mm-hmm. a you know, trusted implementation partner that can walk you through those steps. Yep. And I will say on the AI, uh, for the listeners, we'll link to that uh, Lauren Horsharger uh, podcast. And then Doug, as we as we wrap up here, you know, what are you, are you polling when you're doing the survey? Like, because I, I think the listeners would be interested, like you said, how people are handling and tackling the technology, but also like the staffing and the labor. Like, I, like if you're at any given point, finding interesting strategies that people are deploying, like internal training or how people are handling this labor and skill shortage, yeah. I think would be a fascinating topic that our listeners would care about next time. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Um, I would say we don't necessarily survey on that. We do a lot of conversations around that. When I'm at, you know, middle market events or I'm on the road and I have a chance to meet with CEOs and owners, that's one of the things I ask most of these individuals Mm -hmm. is like, okay, we see in the data that there's a challenge. What are you doing individually or collectively to address? I mean, I I think over the years, we've seen some creative things that companies are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes they're collaborating with peers in um, even within the same industry. And they're saying, if we come together, let's say we need a certain skill set, I don't know, welders or engineers Mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, can we work together to address that collectively rather than one-on-one where it becomes much more of a challenge? Um, I would say even being at Ohio State University, and we're kind of facing this right now because we've got the big Intel investment. Um, They're building a huge, you know, microchip facility about 20 miles away from campus. And they've already come to us to say, we're going to be hiring hundreds of your students every year. So one, you need to be ready for that. But two, you need to build curriculum so that yeah. they have the right skills to come in and immediately make an impact. So that will apply not only to Intel itself, but the hundreds of middle market suppliers who will be co-locating around that facility. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of a, you know, that's something that's happening in our backyard that I'm taking quite a bit of interest in because I want the NCMM to be a part of those conversations with all that supply base. Yeah, they're going to be middle market companies. I can guarantee yeah. you. Well, it goes back to one of the segments we had in here about the growth of e-commerce and where, and it's just about making sure that all the labor and the companies are moving to where the puck is, which is the point of these segments and having you on. So Doug, this has been an absolute blast again. Where can people find uh, the National Center for the Middle Market, the reports, and uh, subscribe to you guys' as material? Yeah, the nice thing about our center is that all of this information is publicly available. Um Go to our website, middlemarketcenter.org. You can also subscribe there. Very easy, just your name and your email. You'll get uh, regular newsletters and updates on all of our latest research, our data, our events, and and outreach. So that'd be a great place to start. Doug, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. 
All right, we're halfway there. If you're just listening to this in one long string of audio, I give you a ton of props. But if you're just skipping to this, I'm excited because we are going to be diving in to the merger and acquisition deal volume, valuations, deal structures with Jeff from Butcher Joseph. And the reason I'm so excited about this part of our quarterly updates is Jeff is one of the managing partners at Butcher Joseph. They're an investment banking firm that does a lot of deals in a lot of different structures. So it's not just a one trick pony of someone that sells a company to a third party. They do debt raising, they do internal buyout transactions, ESOPs, sales to third party strategics, as well as private equity firms. Jeff is on the board of the National Center for Employee Ownership. So if you caught last week's episode when I was talking to Corey Rosen, they're in uh, the same circles with the National Center of Employee Ownership. So Jeff is just trying to help us understand what's going on from the valuation perspective, given the state of the economy. So where they get their data is not only from their own transactions, but they leverage a tool called GF Data, where they are getting data from 400 plus private equity firms that are submitting their deal data between 10 million and 500 million dollars in enterprise range value so jeff's gonna be talking about is the deal volume up or down over this last quarter what's going on with multiples and then we dive into what's going on with the different industries which is related to itr's segment because the different industries are in different cycles so we start to see different data show up and then what's happening with financial premium performers whether people that are in really good rock solid shape or if they're getting a premium or not and then what is happening with senior debt interest rates platforms versus bolt-ons there's a lot of material that jeff and i cover and i think given the first two segments there's gonna be a lot of context for this conversation with jeff so without further ado here's jeff from butcher joseph jeff how are you my friend I'm great. Ryan, how have you been? Hope you had a nice summer. Uh, yeah, right. Happy it's like, <laughs> it's like it was there and now it's gone. And that's, uh, yeah. I don't, uh, yeah, that's, that's how it typically feels in Minnesota because we jam 12 months of fun stuff into four months and just hope for the best and then get back to work when Labor Day hits. Um, right. And we've not only had a crazy summer, but also on our last call, we were talking about interest rates and the bank failures and all these different things. And it's just amazing, especially I know ITR, the folks that Brian loves talking about how just the flash in the frying pan of the the news kind of forgets that there's this underlying trend and things that continue to move forward, whether the news talks about it or not. And you had, uh, right before we had hit record, you'd said, you know, observing some of the trends and the velocity of those trends. What were some of the things that you're kind of seeing that are sticking or that you're observing right now, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think if you think back to a quarter ago, we we had already sort of established in the, the first part of this calendar year that we were coming off sort of a kind of a high watermark at the end of, of 22, right? For uh, deal activity volume wise, for uh, pricing multiples uh, that were being paid. Um, and, and, um, and, and we recognized, I think, you know, in the first quarter of the year that we started to see a little bit of a reversion downward, both in terms of um, pricing multiples that were being paid and starting to see maybe a little bit of a, a slowdown in, in deal volume. I think the velocity has only sort of continued um, further and maybe even sort of picked up steam a little bit in the second quarter, unfortunately, um, because we definitely saw a continued reduction in, in uh, deal pricing, um, particularly at the high end. Um, when, I, when I mean the high end, I mean the largest transactions. Um, and by I pricing, you just to be clear, because you're talking total enterprise value, but specifically on the multiples? 
Uh, Correct. Okay. Yes. 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 Yeah. Thank you. Um, generally, when I when I say pricing, yeah, I uh, sort of default to thinking everyone knows what I mean, but it's good to clarify that. <laughs> it's all good. Typically, pricing of a, a enterprise value to, to EBITDA multiples. So EBITDA multiples have sort of continued to to decline. Um, you know, throughout the second quarter, maybe even picked up a little bit of steam. Um, I think that uh, as a, as a result of that, you know, consequently, we saw a lot of volume uh, further deteriorate. Um, and, and I think where we are now in terms of, you know, sort of deal volume, if, if this sort of trend continues through the end of this calendar year, um, we'll probably be at the lowest, you know, mark for deal flow and deal volume probably for the last four or five years. Yeah. I was going to um, say, do you, do you remember what the numbers were? I'm like, what, cause I mean, it's pretty significant that, I mean, it's not just, oh, a couple deals fall off. I mean, there's, I don't know what the percentage is or whatever, but I mean, the, the, yeah. the new interest rates and a lot of the stuff, I think, is starting to come into the system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's just the ripple effect of a lot of you know moving pieces in prior months, right? Um, I think where we've seen the most price sort of deterioration for the largest transactions, as I was starting to say, you know, there's certainly been some price deterioration for the smaller transactions, but those smaller transactions never kind of, I think in my mind, sort of experienced the same sort of run up in pricing that the largest transactions did. So mm -hmm. proportionally, there was more downside, you know, further for the larger transactions to fall uh, versus the smaller transactions. They just didn't have that same sort of run up. But a lot of it, I think, is due to the fact that the pricing environment, you know, particularly for financing, has just continued to increase. I mean, we talked about it before the Fed started in early, you know, 22. And that certainly continued throughout the course of calendar year 22 and into 23. Um, hopefully, we've we've seen that the the rate of increase has has slowed mm -hmm. on a more permanent level. I think everyone's kind of anticipating that the Fed might raise rates a, a couple more times this year. Maybe yeah. um, maybe 25 basis point increments, which is is still you know raising rates, but not to the you know to the extent they were when they were raising them by 50 and 75 basis points. And that 50 and 75 basis points obviously has created just higher cost of financing that sort of rippled through. And with with price with that higher cost of financing, you know that's resulted in these lower pricing multiples. It's created an environment where maybe sellers of businesses and buyers of businesses are kind of having a harder time reaching a agreement on value, mm -hmm. um, maybe the appetite for, for selling your business is still there, but the spread between, you know, the bid ass spread between what someone expects to get when someone's willing to pay mm -hmm. might be a little larger. And that just creates a little bit of a, a slowing of the wheels of deal flow and, and, and the progression that things go from start to finish. I think banks as part of their sort of diligence process or, um, obviously, you know, because of the sort of some of the uncertainty, perhaps on the uh, on the horizon from a, from a macro perspective, and trying to understand and digest how rising interest rates are going to impact businesses, or doing some additional diligence, and that takes time to get your financing lined up. And so, a lot of these things are, I think, are responsible for kind of where we are today. Um, you know, as, as as I mentioned, what we sort of saw in the second quarter for the increased velocity in some of these trends. Well, it makes so much sense, Jeff, because like, you know, every graph that I've seen over the last like six months, like of like the graph between like when Volcker raised the rates and then or Benanke or any of these people, like 
I mean, it's like it's like straight up on how fast they raised him these days compared to even when Volker raised him. It was more of like a 45 degree angle. And it's just going to take some time because I always think to myself, whether you're in a huge deal, you get your bank financing of even it's, you know, eight figures, nine figures, you get your bank financing, due diligence, the whole machine's going and that's mm-hmm. happening halfway through the deal. So like yeah. now, are you, are you starting to see like where the new landscape is impacting the origination of the first conversation almost we're like we're kind of caught up now we're like the stuff that was in the funnel is kind of being reconciled with and now it's kind of like hitting the prospect of new deal flow yeah i think we're, we're starting to maybe see a little bit of that um you know i think that uh our thoughts and perspective at this point are that where where that where we might really start to start to see some more progression in new deal flow in the broader M and A market might be sometime in fourth quarter or first quarter of next year. Got it. We're kind of at this point. You know, August is always kind of a weird time too, right? Um, because you know, in July and August is usually the summer months when people go on vacation, right? So <laughs> so you get a lot of people that are out on vacation. Their attention is elsewhere. Um, and so they kind of put things off a little bit, um, until they get back from vacation. Kids are starting to go back to school. Labor days is coming weekend. And, and so maybe, you know, traditionally we've always kind of seen maybe, I don't want to say the the floodgates open post labor day, but we see just a little bit more attention to transactions given by people post September. And so maybe I'll change my mind next week Mm -hmm. or two weeks from now. But as we sit here today, I feel like where we kind of are is at this, this, this quiet period that I feel like might continue to linger into the fourth quarter. And, and then maybe that's when we'll start to get really some legs behind um, some, uh, some new deal flow mm-hmm. uh, from there and into the Q1. It, of it'll be, year. it'll be interesting to watch the volume uh, track along with ITRs, the, the business cycle where they're, they're, they're predicting a slow down in 24 and more of the growth in 25. Cause I'm the only, I mean, this is just my layman's way of thinking about it, but like all of those rate hikes are now coming into fruition in 24. You know what I mean? It just takes that while. And then 25, we're starting to like, you know, get into the new world and all the expectations are kind of aligned. I don't know. It just, it seems like an, like a, like a sensical argument, you know, from a narrative Mm -hmm. perspective. Well, and I, you know, and the other thing I think that we're seeing too, that kind of plays into that is a lot of companies, you know, they're coming off a fiscal year where let's just say they were at peak earnings, right? Um, and peak margins um, at the end of 22. And and so now as, you know, people are uh, buyers of businesses and sellers are talking and those companies are producing financial statements, we're, we're seeing some financial statements that, you know, are showing kind of a, a, a decline mm-hmm. from, from those peak earnings. And so I think, again, a lot of times in the diligence process, people are really spending extra time trying to understand, well, is this a structural change in you know the underlying business's financial performance? Is it temporary? You know, or how? You know, if we see kind of a decline in the earnings, you know, when, when do we think that decline is going to stop and stabilize, and at what level do we think that's going to be? Um, and, and that's kind of what the that's kind of what the everyone's sort of looking for and trying to get their arms around. I feel like is okay. We get that you're coming off peak earnings. But what we don't get is how far below peak earnings you're going to go. Well, and, and, and we got to get comfortable coming off those, you know, to yeah. what that level is before we're willing to really move forward with greater, 
you know, speed. So, and, and like, I'm assuming you're having this with your clients too. And like, and as, a, as my team's having conversations with our clients and we're trying to get to that, what's the new norm? It's like, well, we got geopolitical issues. We got supply chains that have decoupled and are not going back. So like, we're trying to like pin it back to some sort of normalcy, but there is no normalcy to pin it to. <laughs> Cause it's like yeah, supply right. chains are different. Interest rates are different. Geopolitical issues yeah. are different. And then I'm watching from our various comp- uh, industries that, and sectors that we work with, Jeff, the softening of sales too, which you talk yeah. about, like you might have the peak earnings because of the free money, but then like the consumer doesn't have the, dollars to spend. So there's just so much swimming around in what's normal. And then what do we project into the future? Yeah, exactly. And everybody's just trying to get a better sense of kind of what that looks like and where, you know, if this is the bottom and, you know, or how far the trend is going to continue down, you don't want to catch sort of that falling sore is the old yeah, adage, yeah, right? right? Right. So, uh, so just kind of, you know, those types of trends, I think you're right, is, is, is what's causing a little bit of consternation and slowdown until people can kind of get a better sense of, you know, where things will shake out and why. And, um, and I think that that kind of concept showed up. Um, do you want to explain um, the financial performer premiums? I thought that was a, a interesting concept and how there was financial performers that had a premium and that premium is declined. So maybe kind of explain what that is and the, the importance of that premium. Yeah, absolutely. So conceptually, you know, uh, financial performance premium generally, you know, kind of what, what that's referring to is um, the, the, Incremental premium, a company that would be viewed as a high performer would receive in a transaction relative to maybe a company that's considered a, a, a lower performer, right? I mean, the idea simply in, in a nutshell is that, hey, if you've got a company that is a high performing company that's in greater demand than a lower performing company would be and investors and buyers of businesses are willing to pay mm-hmm. a higher price because you you have and can exhibit those characteristics. Um, but with everything sort of resetting and recalibrating, um, largely, you know, centered around the amount of debt that's available when, you know, you, you're, you're underwriting these transactions while you might still be willing to pay up for a premium business uh, relative to a lesser performing or an underperforming mm-hmm. business. The ability to pay as high of a premium um, is that much more difficult. Got um, it. That's a, that spread is just. That spread yeah. is compressed, right? That spread is compressed unless the buyer wants to put in more equity um, and preserve that spread. But the challenge is for financial buyers, um, you know, to generate the type of rate of return that you want to generate on your investment for your limited partners. You really sort of need to call it minimize the amount of equity relative to debt financing. And so, you know, it, it gets a little challenging just from the math equation to be able to continue to offer that same type of premium. Mm -hmm. So that premium is compressing uh, as a result. Super, yeah, super helpful, Jeff. And then also maybe another layer of context to that is the bolt-on versus the, um, uh, the bolt-on versus the platform and kind of what's going on in there too. Cause I think it's, these are just wonderful ways to highlight the trends that you had just uh, started off with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing, I think, a trend where, again, if, if, if a buyer was to establish, you know, a sort of a platform business, um, they're going to view that investment differently than what they might view, of course, um, the a transaction that would acquire another smaller business that they would bolt onto a platform business. And interestingly enough, I think lenders are doing the exact same thing, by the way. Um, one of the things we've seen in some of the credits, we, we're out in market, you know, all the time with, with some companies and one of the things we're seeing in the responses we're getting um, from lenders is that 
they don't feel they can be as competitive as they would like to be for a business that they are not already the incumbent lender to. Um, if they are the incumbent lender, they're willing to kind of stretch a little bit more beyond what would otherwise be the case because they're already familiar with the business, yeah, they're known, right? They're familiar. You know, it's, it's the devil you know already is better than the devil you don't know. And I think the same type of type of concept is kind of playing out a little bit in the, in the sense of, um, you know, these uh, platform businesses, bolt-ons in terms of how buyers are going to be looking at those. Um, and how much more they're willing to take a leap on. Clearly, if you've already got a platform business, you want to continue to build that business. And so you may be a little bit more aggressive with the platforms because you want to continue to build that business, particularly now if the organic growth of the platform business starts to mm -hmm. sort of wane. Mm -hmm. um, and you can uh, obviously buy uh, inorganically another uh, company to bolt onto it to further scale the business, which generates you know, not only – incremental dollars but maybe you know some synergistic value right that right. Also helps, right and uh, well, and, and all the syn yeah the synergies then the like also the the bigger the you know the cash flow the larger the multiple just in general too yes. and so yes. the in uh, the last uh kind of question in this the line of um thoughts is and then how are the different buyers reacting to all of these components too, from family office to private equity to strategics, knowing that the premiums are kind of coming down from the financial versus the strategic like you alluded to? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it, that's a great question. And I think uh, it, there is a sort of a stark contrast in those uh, particular cohorts. I think the strategic buyers are all going, thank goodness. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Right. You know, thank God. Thank God. We finally have some sensibility in the marketplace because they were a lot of times priced out of the marketplace right. two, three years ago when private equity was paying, you know, multiples that they felt were, you know, astronomical for, for lack of a better word. Um, and, and so now that we've seen those, those, those multiples come down, they're a more competitive buyer again. Yeah. And so, so they're, they're looking at this going, Phew, thankfully <laughs> the markets, you know, reached a sense of sensibility. Um, I, I think, you know, private equity is the one that's probably had uh, the least, um, you know, uh, activity levels this year uh, as a result of the fact that they just use leverage so much in their transactions. Mm -hmm. We already kind of well established what that means for pricing multiples. And so I think they, too, like the idea that they can pick up businesses today that are high quality at a cheaper price than they had to pay uh, three months ago or uh, three years mm -hmm. ago, uh, I should say. So I think. Even they are kind of applauding this, um, but I think they're the ones that also recognize a bit of the frustrations that it's, again, maybe um, you know more centered on just the amount of capital that's available for them to, to capitalize on opportunities mm -hmm. um, more so than anything else. Whereas strategics usually, you know, they have a strong balance sheet, they have cash flows, they can maybe sometimes pay with equity as a form of currency. They built up cash over the years, maybe they have a greater war chest. Um, and they probably have, a, I mean, their assessment of risk they're in the business of the business that they're most likely buying a, a general good chunk of the time. So then there's the ability to get the deal done because they can see yeah. the risk in a little bit different fashion too. Exactly. Exactly. And, and of course, you know, the private equity firm is going to have a little bit of a shorter investment horizon. So it's very important for them to, to um, that their entry price be um, a certain amount, you know, that's attracts at a certain level. So the exit uh, result that they're anticipating and, and, and driving for um, creates that sort of, you know, value for the limited partners. I think family office is kind of a little bit of a hybrid there. Um, I would say more, more probably skewed it toward a strategic buyer than private equities because mm -hmm. they have a longer hold period. Mm -hmm. um, obviously clearly still a financial buyer in a lot of ways, but I think that, um, 
you know, there's an opportunity for family offices to kind of look with their longer term horizon as um, at a portfolio or at a business and think about it from, well, how can we sort of help the management team build mm-hmm. this business up? Very nuanced um, question about this. I just uh, honestly, my own curiosity, Jeff, you know, strategics, higher probability, most likely getting cash up front, maybe an earnout, escrow, some stock swap, private equity, you know, traditional cash maybe some burnout, but rolled equity family offices. I've interviewed quite a few family offices, Jeff, and the ones I've interviewed, not to say that this is a general rule for all family offices, but was they didn't like to have a lot. They didn't like mathematically for their investment thesis to have the rollover equity because they're like, well, we're going to buy the breast. So why would we want to pay more later? So yeah. The private act or the the what I've interviewed and from all the family offices I know, they kind of lean more towards the strategic from the deal structure side. Does that reconcile with what you see or yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um I would agree with yeah. that. I think that's um I think that's a fair point because again, the they're they're the the mindset of the family office is more akin to the strategic buyer. Right. They're not looking for a quick flip on the business, they're holding it for a much, much longer period of time. And so to that point, you know, if I'm if I know I want the equity of the business and I think it's going to grow, why do I want to take a second bite of the apple? After Pay more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I should get it now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, uh, two things I'm I'm kind of just paying attention to. Curious on your thoughts. Don't have to give any like uh, um, novel answer unless you got some comments right away. But like I I, I caught in the data that there's a lot more deal volume happening below the $10 million enterprise value that the GF data and you guys have been monitoring, um, which kind of goes into the, the what I watch in the US Census Bureau, how many companies are below that dollar amount, it's like 95% of companies, yet you've got mm-hmm. this $1.5 trillion of equity raised by PE firms and all these people. And so how like, where are these deals going to come from? You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. So like, are, are these buyers going to have to continue to move down? My, my, my question is, Jeff, you, with this huge inventory of companies below the threshold that's even being tracked by the private equity data and all yeah. of this money raised where you could go buy probably the entire private market twice, what the heck do you do about this? And again, you don't yeah. have to, I, like, I just, I'm, I'm just so curious on this, how to solve this. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, there is there is a lot of businesses that are you know s- smaller businesses out there clearly, um, and and there's a universe of buyers that are looking for smaller businesses, and you know the the credit markets aren't closed, right? Mm-hmm. So there's still financing available, and commercial banks, you know, if the, if it's a business that has some assets that can be lent against, there's still some some credit there that facilitates you know transactions in that smaller in, in that smaller universe of companies for sure. Um, I think that that's just always going to be, though, a different type of buyer versus the, the the buyers of businesses that traditionally focus on the larger companies. So I don't think we're going to see a circumstance where someone that traditionally has looked for a 200 to $500 million business all of a sudden saying, well, that since that deal flow has basically frozen, I, I'm going to go buy a $20 million yep. enterprise value yep, business. Yep. Um, I, I just think that that's not going to be you know, kind of there. Do you, do you um, see the possibility of having more and more like hold co's or like the permanent equities? I don't know if you're familiar with Brent B. Shore. He's been on the call, show a couple of times where these people are like more active in the operations because the smaller you get, the more active you have to get in like maintaining the asset. Yeah, no, I think there's a big, big group of people out there, buyers, um, that universe of, uh, in that universe of companies that recognize that, 
those are, you know, sm these founder smaller owned businesses oftentimes don't have like a real built out leadership team, right? They didn't establish like a, a, a deep bench of leadership. They don't have really any sort of plans for ownership succession. And so it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a universe of companies that are right for someone to come in who wants to have more of a, an operating role, right, right, right. not just be sort of a passive investor, but independent sponsor, maybe, um, someone that can come in or, and, um, and, and really put themselves in the CEO seat, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and, um, and drive performance on a go forward basis, uh, I think is, is, um, certainly, um, you know, the, I think we're going to see more of it. Businesses we'll see more of. Yeah. Jeff, this has been an absolute blast again, as always lots of rich, valuable content. I appreciate your time. Is there anything that we should be thinking of, uh, between now and the next call or something that you're kind of curious on that we should pick up next time? You know, I'll be just curious to see how companies' earnings performance hold up through the rest of the second half of this year. That, that's the biggest thing I think I'm keeping my eye on because I think um, that'll inform a lot about the sort of activity levels that we can expect in 2024. Uh, I think everybody pretty much has a good sense of like the Fed's path, barring something that is, you know, unexpected. Um, and, and, you know, you can you can sort of underwrite to the type of uh, environment we're living in with uh, you know, the cost of money. But I think the uh, the unknown variable, at least right now, is just how companies' performances will hold up. Mm -hmm. So we can focus more on that next time. Free cash flow and earnings, baby. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show again. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And for our fourth and final segment of the quarterly economic update, I have Jeff Campbell from AI Commerce. And the reason I had Jeff on the show is because Jeff is a professor, so he, he helps teach people about marketing and business, which I love. He's also an entrepreneur. He invests in companies and he helps e-commerce brands expand their marketplace across various platforms. So I got an email from Jeff and it showed all the data, what's going on with retail and e-commerce, and I couldn't wait to stack him onto this quarterly update. So Jeff is gonna be diving into what's going on in retail sales, and then specifically how e-commerce and mobile commerce is impacted and what the growth rate is compared to physical stores. And I think this is all very relevant based on the part of the ITR segment where we were talking about retail sales, the consumer, consumer debt. And we're just jumping right into specifically that segment which Jeff highlights the different trends and what to expect with Gen Z and how Gen Z is gonna be going from like 40 some million consumers to 60 million and what that might impact mobile sales versus retail sales versus e-commerce and how the different uh, platforms like Walmart and Amazon and those e-commerce platforms are getting impacted. One of the interesting stats from today is that Amazon's in decline compared to some other different trending growth platforms that I think are some things to take note of. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeff from AI Commerce. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Ryan. I'm very excited to have this conversation. I was uh, just saying to you, kind of giving you an overview of the quarterly updates that we've been doing. And you always, like I actually read your email that comes out. So like there, <laughs> there's, a, there's a positive, Good. right? And so it means you're providing value, my friend. And so much that I, I was excited to have you on for the quarterly update because of your focus on online and retail sales. And so why don't, why don't you just give the, the listeners uh, just a quick overview of yourself and then the business, and then where, where are you getting this data? And then we'll, we'll jump right in. 
Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, so my main company is AI Commerce. We are a digital marketing agency that's focused on retail media and marketplaces. So we'll talk a lot about uh, that world. Uh, my background is 20 plus years in, in digital media, and we'll talk about plenty of that as well. I'm also a professor, uh, adjunct professor at Wake Forest University and teach digital media and marketing in their master's program for uh, digital marketing. So just graduated our first four in that program and have a course starting this week with 25 more folks. So got to stay on man. those trends and, and keep up with uh, teaching. I uh, just love to make sure people are well informed here. That's awesome, man. And it just it's so aligned with everything that we're doing, too. So let's let's break down why you care about retail and online. So it's kind of give us the big overview of like why you care. And then because again, with these with this segment, we'll have the uh, economic update with ITR already with the kind of the macro picture. So it's going to slide right in perfectly. Yeah, I love it. So let's start big at at overall retail store uh, sales. And it's, it's been wild, right? Post COVID. Uh, then we kind of had a bump. Everybody missed going into physical retail. Um, right, right now, uh, where I'm getting a lot of my data, I love eMarketer, um, and so I'm using a lot of that. And their 2023 U.S. e-commerce forecast that was put out in the last couple of weeks. So great data there. In terms of uh, you know, it covers overall retail sales, online sales, and then kind of the growth areas around marketplaces. And and if you think about e-commerce, there's really three areas where you're going to convert a sale uh, online, at least. And that is your, your website, uh, very popular in the past, usually number one, um, social commerce, which is growing fast. And social is still the number one place for where consumers discover new products, great behavioral targeting uh, that you can go and get your ad, your video in front of. And third is marketplaces. And we'll talk a lot about that, but that's really where people are going to buy. That's kind of the bottom of the funnel. The prime guy, you know, comes every other day. I know him by first name. Actually, there's a whole <laughs> bunch of them that come by. Um, and, you know, I, I love the return policy. They've got my credit card. That's where I'm making purchases. And that's a big shift over from websites. But as a consumer, ah, I don't want to give them my email address. I don't need any more email that might not add value like mine, Ryan. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I don't know their shipping policies. I don't want to enter my credit card or go remember that three number code. So, I'm just going to go with what I know. So a lot of people just default and we'll talk a lot about that. Did you just um, sum up my shopping experience? And just, yeah, right. Like you just, totally, you totally. just summed me up right there. Like I don't want to buy from Amazon, but everything you just said goes through my head. And then I go to the app and I hit buy. <laughs> yeah, I know it's tough, right? The, the devil you, the devil, you know, uh, but overall retail sales are growing, which is pretty, pretty neat to see. Um, it is modest growth. You're looking at three to three and a half uh, percent growth in, in forecasted overall retail sales. And we've seen some higher prices, uh, you know, groceries making all the news, interest rate hikes and just swings in consumer confidence. So it's holding back a little bit. Um, we do see physical retail purchase sales growth closer to two uh, percent. And the you know, in the U.S., about 85% of purchases are done in physical retail. So that's somewhat surprising still. to me. Um, it, I was going to say, man, it's like, you know, everybody yeah. talks about online, online, and we, I mean, we're, you know, we're just all staring at our phones all day long, yet you got 85% of the sales right. in stores. And, and that'll shift, right? I, I think yep. that Gen Z is going to drive a lot of change. I mean, they're, they're the digital natives, right? That's all they've ever known. Um, they are growing from 46 million uh, consumers in, in 2023 to 61 million in 2027, right? It's interesting, and dude. When I, when I was reading the, the report you sent me, 
Um, yeah. I actually read in another uh, article this week that they'll go right. So those numbers, uh, uh, to put some percentages to it, I think they're 15% of the workforce right now. And they're going to 30 by 2030. So like, it's a big deal. Right. I mean, what were the implications that you guys were uh, the implications of Gen Z to retail and yeah, uh, smartphones are big. You, you mentioned it too. And, and yeah, I think we're all kind of in that digital space. So we act a little bit, maybe younger than some of our cohorts, but, um, smartphones are going to account for 43 of us e-commerce sales, uh, this year. And then by, you know, by the end of the year or next year, uh, 50%. So really, uh, really seeing those. And I remember having conversations or being in a conference, raise your hand if you've ever made a purchase on your phone. Right. And uh, we're, well, I'm dating myself a little bit, but now, you know, half, half of purchases are done on the phone. And again, Gen Z, probably the strong majority. So, well, and, you know, and that, I think that's going to be interesting. One comment, one comment I wanted to hear uh, from you, Jeff, is kind of just uh, uh, setting the stage for the listener about like omni channel where someone starts on. So, people that maybe aren't familiar, as familiar with e commerce, but they start shopping on their phone, but then they actually purchase online or, or, or on their computer or in store. Right. How does that impact that mobile uh, mobile percentage you're talking about? Yeah, uh, it, it is. And, you know, I, I mentioned the discovery with social, especially, right? You're scrolling through your TikTok and it's like, oh, I, you know, forgot I needed hiking socks or whatever it might be, right? But, um, and then, then yeah. you're bouncing over and you're searching Amazon. And then, you know, then you might actually go into Dick's Sporting Goods and, and make that purchase. So attribution still is a big business, uh, but you still have what we call in the industry are walled gardens. So a lot of the data lives within TikTok and TikTok's actually come out recently and said, hey, we don't, really love sharing, you know, links and um, our customers with Amazon. So we're going to try and keep them in our, in our world. Same with Amazon, right? Amazon's got just massive consumer data and they've rolled out what's called a DSP. And that's uh, using your behavioral data to, you know, go out on the internet and show you ads in different places or selling uh, more or less your behaviors to people that want to target you. So if I've got hiking socks in my cart, um, a competitor of maybe darn tough or whatever, whatever brand that might be can actually target me throughout the internet. And that's really strong data. Now you, now you take that to the offline world and you look at somebody like Walmart. I mean, think of the throne of data that they're sitting on with all of their online purchases. And it's, you know, I was I think they got was, online and the stores, like they got the right. Best of both so you ones. got store data. You, you know, I like to buy trail mix to continue our, our hiking and um, and maybe some dehydrated, you know, beef jerky, dehydrated food packs. And it's like, wow, this guy likes to hike. Uh, and, and Walmart can say, Hey, you guys can target him online. And they have a great first party data network because they have my email address and they know I'm a customer and they can actually tie that back to sales, including in store sales. So I might be shown, you know, I'm playing fantasy football and there's an ad for some new trail mix or beef jerky. And then Walmart's actually able to report back to that company that advertised to me via their platform. If I actually bought that in their physical store, so a lot of compared change to in the compared to what you said earlier, data. compared to what you said earlier, where you scroll on TikTok, you see a couple of things, and you go into Dick's Sporting Goods, and no one knew how that all that, went down. That connection's a lot harder, but do expect it to get better. In the TikTok example, they're adding, you know, commerce. Uh, so, well, they have commerce. So you can actually now you're seeing more and more brands testing out some of their advertising, some of their commerce abilities where you can actually, you know, have that full circle purchase and, mm -hmm. and have shipping and e-commerce to you. Um, you know, Instagram is probably a little more recognizable where you're scrolling and you see a product and there's that shop now and you can completely check out without having to bounce to a website or a, mm -hmm. a marketplace to make that happen. So TikTok is certainly doubling, tripling down in that area. Um, and TikTok by 
2025 is supposed to be the number one in user minutes uh, across all the social platforms. So right now it's number two uh, to Meta and uh, probably really Instagram, uh, but that is going to climb to number one in, in minutes of usage. So you got to you got to target all these places, and it's tough because right you got overall retail sales growing, you got online sales. They're expected to grow nine percent uh, this year and, and like 10 and a half, 11 percent next year. And then you've got the marketplaces and they're actually expected the highest growth overall um, next year where they're closer to 11 to 13 percent over the next year. So growth, growth, growth online, which is which is great. How does a how does a marketer pick their battles with their limited uh, budgets and, and manage that portfolio? Mm-hmm. And well, and uh, uh, p- pulling from your email, <clears throat> you would maybe you can uh, elaborate on this a little bit more. You're talking about as competition increases, brands must increase spending on customer acquisition and cr- increase efforts to retain existing ones. You want to explain the implications of that comment? Yeah, um, a, a lot of a lot of e-commerce folks are are you know not wrong, not wrong, but wanting every sale to be profitable. Um, it, it, that's, <laughs> Welcome you know, to entrepreneurship, right? right? Sorry to you, you need it. They're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but at right, the same exactly. time, and, and using the Amazon subscribe and save, right? Or if you've got a quality product, you've got a, a tea that you think the flavor is going to blow people away, you know, you, you can lose some money on those sales, bank on your product's value that you're going to add. And, and remember, remarketing is important. Again, even down to advertising. I can, I should have ad campaigns that retarget some of my current customers, my lapsed customers, and even a strategy around non-customers. So I can say, hey, this person hasn't bought from me in six months. How do I get them back? Or hey, this person has, you know, bought from me religiously every month, every couple of weeks. How how can I, you know, get new products, cross sell and upsell uh, to that person? Mm-hmm. So, yes, customer acquisition costs. So think of like getting that customer and then lifetime value. And I always love to tell the Amazon story from like 2001, 2002, and they were just starting. I was an affiliate for Amazon and they were, they were paying me uh, $50 for every sale I would get regardless of the sale amount and the AOV, the <laughs> average order value was like 25 ish dollars. So I'm like, you're paying me $50 to get a $25 order. Like this company is not going to last. I'll take your money and laugh all the way to the bank. And they're like, Jeff, we're doing this on a 10 year lifetime value model, right? We think our, our shipping, we think our customer service, we think you know the marketplace is is that valuable that you're going to keep coming back. Mm-hmm. They were right, right? And I spent, you know, I'm sure everybody spent way more than that initial value. But I mean, that's a good strategy to think about. What is the, uh, you know, is this is this a one and done or is this an ongoing relationship you're looking to have? So yes, I do. I do uh, think lifetime well, value, like, loyalty measurements important. And in what, what what I'm hearing in that um, kind of story is that. It's the it's the overall relationship with the customer instead of a flash in the frying pan that you sold someone some sunglasses while they were scrolling on TikTok. You know what I mean? Like right, it's right. that's what I'm that's what I'm gathering. I like turning these companies into real businesses with a real brand that sell on multiple channels that are selling goods and services to people that want it. <laughs> right, right. And and you and you build that brand and that's so important. And I think that's being lost a bit with marketplaces. Most people go to an Amazon and, and other marketplaces, you know, t- you know, anywhere there's third party sellers. I mean, Macy's has one and, and Walmart and, and many others, Wayfair. And it really is price, price, price. And um, mm-hmm. that that is another, I think, one of those implications of like really conveying your, your value um, to folks. And it might not just be price. Right. And consumers are you know, typically going to go for the lower price. But if you've got strong ratings and reviews, 
good content, people are willing to pay up for that. If I, if my kid needs, you know, football cleats and I can go on Amazon and I can find some no name brands that, you know, sound a little, you know, Chinese or whatever, but they're half the price of Under Armour. I'm kind of like, I know Under Armour, I know Nike, I know they're going to stand behind their goods and their quality and I'm willing to pay up for it. And that's, that's worth something. So Again, mm-hmm. in this online world, I see a lot of the entrepreneurs starting up and they forget about, you know, like customer acquisition costs, just building a brand and, and showing, you know, their their differentiators um, and value beyond just a, a low price. Because if you're if you're if your stuff's manufactured in China and you're you're pretty much a middleman as is, somebody's going to be able to undercut your price If they haven't now. They will eventually. So. You know, certainly work on your sourcing and your supply, you know, chain and, and network to make sure you can get those as low as possible because margins matter a lot in this competitive world. Um, but, you know, value is can be more than price. Um, and that's and, and it's really interesting. Uh, I have a book back here, um, Jeff, called Zeconomy. Um, and uh, it's um, oh, I can't find it. Anyways, um Gen Z, when you talked about how they're going to double from 15% to, to 30% of the workforce, what did you say from 40 million, some to 60 million, some people, yeah, they care cons- more about million consumers to 61. Yeah, they care more years. about sustainability. And also they care more about quality, actually, than anything else. And it goes back to demonstrating the brand and building that trust with the brand. And then it's be interesting as we watch the the retail sales or the the online versus in stores, whether people just they make their decision, then they just go find the cheapest price for that product, right. wherever it might right. be, because that's how I do it. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people do. And, and some things are commoditized where it is just lowest price. But, you know, you look at these, you know, earphones that are in both of our ears that are the same brand. We, we know there's quality. There might even be a little status symbols in that, but you can certainly find cheaper earphones. So, again, mm-hmm. they built a mm-hmm. brand. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with Apple for many, many years, helping launch iPhones and, and more. And, and they... Uh, they certainly had a very unique approach to building a brand. And, and at times they were even like, we don't really care about the ROI. We just want to be first in the search results, right? We mm-hmm. just want to have either the first opening at a magazine or the back page or none at all um, in, a, in a commercial segment. First, first pod, um, first commercial. That's where we want to be because that's about branding. So hmm. interesting approach. It's a, it is. And as branding and trust and being uh, on the different uh, marketplaces and channels matters, then take it a layer deep, uh, layer deeper on like the categories. I thought it was fascinating. The categories that had kind of like the whipsaw over the last few years and what you see coming up into the future. Yeah. Um, so it, it's interesting. I, I think we saw really sporting goods with the uh, pandemic go berserker. And that's, that's one of the lowest now, right? Um, one of the highest now is actually um, food and beverage. So more and more folks, and I mean, I was reminded of going to a big box grocery store, you know, just, just this weekend. And I'm like, oh my God, normally I, you know, go on the app and I get it all set and I just go pick it up and they put it in my trunk. I was actually walking the aisles and I'm like, this is, this is like, that's my hell. Horrible. Like it was crowded and <laughs> yeah, it was totally. the day before back to school. And I'm like, I never want to do this again. So Food, food and beverage um, is is really one of the big ones. I think health, personal care is is another high growth area. So I think we'll uh, we'll see a few more. Um, but another one is also you know we talked a lot about about Amazon, but the growth that's beyond uh, Amazon. And I think last time I was on your podcast and I shared 
you know, Amazon was number one in terms of where people, where consumers go for product searches. Um, it is, it is top mm -hmm. of the list and that used to be Google. And so that was really surprising for a lot of people. It's still number one. Uh, but looking at like Q1 data year over year, uh, Amazon's actually dropped uh, in percentage. So it, it still is number one, search engine, engines are number two, but where there was growth is Walmart, uh, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. So people are mm -hmm. starting product searches on TikTok, right? Um, oh, not as many, just, but certainly more than they ever crazy. have. Yeah. And Walmart as well. And Walmart's number two. And it was kind of like in the world of search, like you had Google and Microsoft. And we're all cheering for Microsoft because we love competition and we want to even out the market. And so we're all cheering for Walmart as well and, and even Target. So uh, we'll we'll see what they do. But uh, yeah, there's, it's so there's a lot of growth. To me. Jeff, it's yeah. so fascinating to me because my partners came from the world of uh, food where they were uh, getting manufacturers into Kroger and a bunch of other big retailers. And so like the amount of time spent on product placement in the shelf space and the end aisles and like it's insane. And what I think people like just to for the listeners, it's as big of a deal. We're talking about the eyeballs on your phone, right? So like it's a big deal that if people are going to search on TikTok, YouTube, and by the way, me on YouTube trying to find, I'm trying to find good information first before I go. Honestly, Jeff, and I'm curious if this has to do with it. Well, I'll finish my thought first is that like the all of the things that you said is a, a, equivalent to the end aisle caps of a retail store that everybody coveted and how fast it's moving for yeah. these business owners is like you have to be paying attention to this stuff of, in order to find their product growth because we're you have it broken down by products but at the in the old retail like storeway it would be aisle spaces and shelf space yeah. and all that stuff and, and so it's just that important still to be thinking about the stuff you're talking about well and it's moved online right with the physical retailers so almost every physical retailer from you know walgreens and cvs to you know um really just anything, uh, grocery stores and more, they're allowing uh, third-party advertisers to advertise on their site or on the back end, if they're carrying uh, your products, they're allowing you to promote them in different ways. And, you know, search is number one, uh, but they're category pages. So let's use the Walmart example. And if you've got, a, you know, ankle brace braces and you're looking for some sort of wrap or whatever, you know, different companies are able to take, you know, and I'm just making up this example. I don't know if Walgreens or CVS does this, but, you know, big hero image or certain placements and they're able to pay for that stuff. And then if I wholesale my ankle brace braces to, you know, those types of companies, uh, I'm going to get more POs. I'm going to get more sales through my wholesale and B2B channel because I'm able to advertise, get more eyeballs, get more conversion rates through it. And then I have to measure it, but I have to manage this whole portfolio now, not just of like D2C consumer, but also now I've got this B2B play, right? Uh, tar Target, Wayfair, yeah. those are all B2B plays where you have to sell at a kind of a bulk volume for um, for a wholesale model uh, and then and then kick in advertising to help spur those sales, you know, reviews, ratings and more. It's it, the game has completely changed for these manufacturers because like before you, you know, talk to a CPG rep who would be helping, you know, talk and build the relationships and the, your, your goal was to build the best product and, and then let everybody else do their stuff. But now you have to be like an online ad specialist, like you just said, all the online stuff plus the manufacturing, there's a lot, a lot of implications. That, kind of like one of my last questions about, I started going on a rabbit hole is when I think about what's happening, Jeff, like it's this 
crisis of like confidence and trust in these brands. I think about how horrible my experience is going and trying to find a show to watch on TV where it was like, you used to be able to flip channels and now I have thousands of subscriptions, but then every subscription has their own channels. And I, I find it weird that like, you know, not weird, but like you have every channel that now has their own app. And now what's happening with the shift from stores to online is you have all these brands that went from, I could go to target and just pick the brand off the shelf for now. I have to sift through a thousand types of granola bars, a thousand types of, you know what I mean? Like it's paralyzing yeah. for the consumers. So you have almost go back to the crisis of confidence and like building those brands is my guess has got to be hugely important going forward because of how horrible the experience is on the consumer side. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I just went paddle ball, pickleball paddle shopping and there's not really, you know, there's maybe two brands, but it's just a long list and, everything's the same price and I'm reading reviews and did you want to be a pickleball paddle specialist before buying one? (laughs) Right. So it's just tell, tell me. And, and I know being a a media person, the ones at the top are usually kind of the ones that are paying for that space. It doesn't mean they're the best, but most consumers, when you talk to them, they're like, yeah, whatever's at the top of Google or Amazon, those are, uh, those are the best. And I'm like, those are just the people with the biggest budgets or know how to, how to measure ROI and target properly. But um, doesn't make them the best. But they're they're doing something right, I guess, to get eyeballs and sales. Going back to the influencer and the people are looking for people to tell them what what they believe. Is there as we're wrapping up here? Is there anything that I haven't asked that we should we should cover? No, I I think that's um, you know I think diversification is probably something I'll leave you with. And and we talked a lot about that. You um, so many e-commerce folks, and it is the bulk of sales just go to Amazon. But Amazon is extremely competitive. CPCs have gone up. Look at alternatives. Um, one last stat from the Association of National Advertisers earlier this year showed they did a survey. 56% of U.S. brands use more than five retail media networks. 16% use more than 10, right? So it is about diversification. That's really where to be. And also helps uh, build your brand, right? You're kind of everywhere the consumer is. Uh, they see you, they recognize you, and that helps. So um yeah, keep growing. It's not um, the strategy isn't getting easier. It's not just I can just give all my money to one place and cross my fingers. You really have to be where the consumer is and the consumer is getting younger, more savvy, more digital. Um, and I think we're all in the right place talking about those those themes. Yeah, I would say diversification of customer base, diversification of marketplace and where you're actually putting the eyeballs and probably diversification of products and services. Because I look at the charts yeah. you sent in the eMarketer and if people were focused on any one of those things, the, the whiplash that they probably experienced over the last three years is not what any investor wants. So more sustainable yeah. future cash flows is the name of the game. <laughs> That's Jeff, true. this has been a lot of fun, man. Um, what, where can people find you, AI Commerce, and get in touch? Yeah, Jeff at AICommerce.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Ryan. Good to be back. I hope you enjoyed that slog through data and what's going on in the economy, what's going on in different industries, sectors, and I hope you found it valuable and relevant. If there's one takeaway I would have, it is understanding your financials and having a clear financial forecast and roadmap that is tied to your target normalized EBITDA at a point in time is crucial because that gives you a decision-making framework to say, should I place this bet? Should I invest that dollar or save that dollar? Can I take distributions while buying that company or buying that building? All of those ideas and thoughts swimming through your head. The only way to get any validation of whether you should or shouldn't is to have a plan towards that target equity valuation and a financial roadmap. 
And I highly recommend checking out the possibility of participating in the Arcona Complimentary Business Financial Assessment. All you have to do is sign up for a 15-minute discovery call while we'll walk you through some questions. I want to know a little bit more about why you're interested in the complimentary assessment. And then if it is a fit, we'll move on to the next stage where there's two complimentary calls and my team will plug in the financial dashboard to your financials and then present to you what it would look like in their thoughts and ideas based on the information that you have provided. Thanks everybody for tuning in to this quarterly economic and M&A update, and I will see you next week.